In 2005, NASA launched the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to survey the red planet. At the time, the camera on board was the largest ever flown on a planetary mission. This allowed the orbiter to identify hazards that could harm landers and rovers. Additionally, the orbiter's imaging spectrometer searched for water features, prospecting for resources and searching for evidence that water once filled the barren Martian landscape. In addition to its science mission, the spacecraft acted as a communications link, relaying high-resolution science data from rovers on the red planet's surface. This is a common, secondary purpose for Martian science orbiters. Mars Global Surveyor and 2001 Mars Odyssey, two previous orbiters, also acted as relays. More recently, the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission, or MAVEN, completed aerobraking maneuvers to tighten its orbit around Mars, enabling it to act as a communications relay for the upcoming Mars 2020 rover, part of NASA's Mars Exploration Program, a long-term effort of robotic exploration of the Red Planet. The rover has the potential to answer key questions about the potential for life on Mars. Much of that data will flow through MAVEN. Closer to Earth, NASA and commercial industry have extensive, robust communications infrastructure. As launch services become more accessible, constellations of relay satellites around Earth become more and more common. Terrestrial connectivity is near instantaneous and omnipresent. However, the challenges of launching satellites to Mars doesn't allow for such a robust network of services. Martian satellites are few and must be jacks of all trades, not dedicated communication satellites like those we enjoy on Earth. But what of the future? What of the not-so-distant tomorrow when launches to Mars are commonplace? What could a Martian communications network look like a thousand years into the future? What network will support human exploration of the Red Planet? I'm Danny Baird. This is The Invisible Network. There are some words that stick with you. Words that a teacher threw your way and stuck in your brain for far longer than the test you studied for required. Most of mine came in the small, brightly colored books of vocabulary passed to students at the beginning of the school year. Each year had a new color, a new list of interesting words to study and learn. I don't know if they still use those books, but I hope they do. I loved them. They informed the decisions that led me here, reading words off a page, words I found somewhere within myself. I don't often use the words I found in those workbooks, but many found their way into the recesses of my mind, popping out of my mouth at opportune moments, surprising me with their eloquence. Some had interesting subtleties of meaning that couldn't be expressed with any other word. Some made me feel pretentious, precocious, potent. Some were just fun to say. Those words often seemed to have a French origin. There was nothing jejun about this potpourri of words. Sangfroid meant a cool composure. Speaking it transported me to a smoke-filled salon with the likes of Dali or Picasso. Rendezvous meant a meeting or encounter. Writing it in my day planner filled the hours with elegance and maturity. Reconnaissance meant surveillance. Whispering it filled childish games of capture the flag with added intrigue. 
One probably most encounters that last word, reconnaissance, in espionage or warcraft. You hear the word in historical war films, presumably featuring a soldier patrolling behind enemy lines, a, a pilot flying high over hostile airspace, or a covert submarine slipping deep below rival warships. NASA's reconnaissance satellites, like the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, don't have national security in mind. In fact, they don't even fly over Earth. Reconnaissance of the sort that NASA performs has no opponent in mind, except the unknown. As we turn our eyes once again to the moon and venture beyond to Mars, the more we understand these destinations, the less hostile they will be to our astronauts. But in this episode, I'm not concerned with literal reconnaissance. Previous NASA missions to Mars have done their jobs, providing NASA with an understanding of the Martian terrain our astronauts will encounter. Rather, I'm curious about a more liminal reconnaissance, one trapped between the waking world and a dreamlike tomorrow. When NASA communications engineers look at the vast topography of Mars, this dusty celestial stranger, what sort of networks do they map onto its barren surfaces? What follows is an interview with Joseph Lazio, chief scientist of the Interplanetary Network Directorate at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which manages NASA's Deep Space Network. The Deep Space Network is a collection of three ground stations with massive antennas, strategically placed around the globe to communicate with spacecraft almost anywhere in deep space. The network ensures communications for many lunar missions, with Mars, with the Voyager missions beyond the influence of our Sun, and many other spacecraft. I've asked Lazio about innovations and technologies that will enable NASA's immediate goals in deep space, but I've also done some reconnaissance. I've asked him to stretch his imagination into the far future, plumbing his imagination for what a Martian communications network might look like hundreds of years from now. Enjoy. What is your name and your role at JPL? My name is Joseph Lazio, although almost everybody knows me as Joe. And my role at uh, JPL is I'm the chief scientist of the part of, of JPL called the Interplanetary Network Directorate. And among other things, we manage NASA's deep space network for NASA. What does that role entail? A fascinating diversity of projects. The Deep Space Network, as, as we'll discuss momentarily, is responsible for uh, enabling a, a whole suite of missions, both for NASA and for international space agencies. And so I think about all aspects of how can we get more science, uh, either from the spacecraft missions or from other things with, with the antennas in the Deep Space Network. And what brought you to that role and to JPL? It was a it was an opportune time. I um, my background is radio astronomy, and the Deep Space Network, the foundation of the Deep Space Network, is a series of large, essentially radio antennas. And in the past, they have done work in radio astronomy. So that confluence of knowing some aspects about radio technology, radio frequency technology, some of the possible science applications, and then just um, looking to the future possible projects that at the time JPL was contemplating being involved in. 
So on a, on a basic level, what is the Deep Space Network? What does its architecture look like? The Deep Space Network is the set of currently radio antennas that NASA uses to uh, enable a whole suite of missions across the solar system and beyond. There are three complexes of antennas. Uh, one is located in Goldstone, uh, California, which is maybe a third of the way between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. One is located in Madrid, just outside Madrid, Spain. And one is located just outside Canberra, uh, Australia. Um, each complex has four antennas, one very large 70-meter antenna, and then three uh, relatively smaller 34-meter antennas. Uh, but even a 34-meter antenna, if you've ever stood next to one, it's, it's an impressive piece of engineering machinery. And these, and these complexes are set up, they're almost equidistant in longitude, so each one is about 120 degrees apart, um, which means that no matter where a spacecraft is in the solar system, it can always see at least one uh, DSN antenna for receiving commands from Earth and then transmitting data back. And what sort of missions does the network currently support? As I indicated, it supports um, or enables missions uh, everywhere across the solar system. And in fact, if you if you simply do a web search on DSN now, there's a website that allows you to view in real time what data are coming down or what commands are being sent up from various spacecraft. I'm, I'm looking at speed. And just to give you an example of the suite of, of missions that is, is enabled by the DSN, um, in Madrid, there is uh, data being uh, coming down from SOHO, which is a joint European NASA mission to study the sun. There are data coming down from Juno, which is the spacecraft orbiting Jupiter. At Goldstone, uh, currently Mars is overhead at Goldstone, so there are two antennas actually that are either transmitting commands or receiving data from four different spacecraft or landers uh, at Mars. Um, there's also uh, data coming down from Chandrayaan-2, which is the uh, Indian mission at the moon. And in Canberra, uh, data are coming down currently from Voyager 2, which is actually a spacecraft outside the solar system. And uh, it's actually coming down through the 70 meter, so it's an illustration of just how, how much science the uh, the network enables. So that's a lot of different missions. What sort of services do you offer them? The DSN, it provides three essential capabilities. They go by the names tele uh, telemetry, tracking, and command. Uh, often, because it's NASA, of course, we need uh, acronyms, so often abbreviated to TTNC. Uh, telemetry is the uh, thing about which most people probably uh, have the most direct connection. So if you've ever seen a, a picture of a planet, undoubtedly that picture has come down through one or more antennas uh, in the network. And telemetry is that process in which the spacecraft transmits a signal or transmits some data or an image from its um, antenna, from its system, and then it's received by one or more DSN antennas. So the telemetry is when the spacecraft sends data down to the Earth or down to us. Command, the C part, is when uh, scientists or operators on the ground are sending commands up to a spacecraft to do something, um, take a picture, gather some kind of data, uh, change its trajectory slightly. And then finally, tracking, the middle T, 
is for trying to figure out where the spacecraft is on the sky or where the spacecraft is in space. And of course, this is a particularly essential aspect when a spacecraft is going from Earth to a destination. We want to keep it uh, on track, as it were, and uh, ensure that it's actually going along the trajectory that will get it to its intended destination. And how is the network growing to support the Artemis missions to the moon? In the near term, um, one of the plans, or actually the plan, is for the network to continue to expand. As I think I said earlier, there are one, there is one 70-meter at each complex and then three 34-meter antennas at each complex. And the objective is to continue to build out 34-meter antennas over the next five years so that each complex has four uh, 34 meters. In fact, there are two 34 meter uh, antennas currently under construction at Madrid uh, in various state, state construction. And then there are there is one planned at Goldstone for which construction will be starting relatively soon. They're already doing site surveys trying to figure out exactly where um, next to the other three 34 meters that the fourth will go. And then there's a planned fourth one for Canberra. Um, sort of middle of, of next decade in the middle of the 2020s. And with that, then there'll be numerous 34 meters, which will allow very high data rates down from um, the, the spacecraft uh, in, uh, at or on the surface of the moon or around the surface of the moon. Beyond the Artemis missions, what are current goals for growing the deep space network's capabilities? I just, in fact, I just sort of uh, summarized one, which which is it's broader than, of course, just Artemis. Um, an, uh, an essential aspect is Artemis, but um, of course, having more antennas enables not only more crewed missions with humans on board, but more robotic missions uh, to other destinations in the solar system. Um, one of the essential aspects is to try to increase the radio frequency at which commands are sent and data are received. Uh, there's a fundamental relationship between how much data one can transmit and the frequency, the radio frequency at which uh, the commands are sent or the, the data are received. And on top of that, things like cell phones and um, 5G and, and other such uses of radio waves are causing increasing congestion in, in the radio spectrum. So we're the, the Deep Space Network and, and NASA in general would like missions to move to higher frequencies uh, so that we can transmit and receive more data. In the near term, that's uh, focused on radio wavelengths, radio frequencies. Uh, looking a little bit farther ahead, one of the goals is to transition to laser communications, actually sending laser um, laser beams back and forth. And again, this is all focused on the idea that as we go to higher frequencies, so uh, light lasers are higher frequencies than radio, we can transmit more data. It's, it's kind of equivalent um, to using fiber optics, if you will, without the fibers um, across the solar system. And that should enable even higher data rates. And in the near term, in fact, some of the, 30, the existing 34-meter antennas in the future one, and some of the future ones to be constructed, they may very well become both radio antennas and optical telescopes, essentially, uh, integrated optical radio with the idea that you can use them either for radio communications for existing spacecraft or maybe in the future uh, laser or optical communications for, for new spacecraft. So those, those are the, the key technologies um, 
both moving to higher radio frequencies and then ultimately to laser communications. Is it a challenge maintaining an operational network while also implementing these new technologies? Oh, of course, yes. Um, particularly in the case when one is retrofitting antennas, uh, so adding an optical or laser capability to an existing radio capability, it's very much like trying to um, do an upgrade to a car or, or replace or um, improve something on a car while it's being driven. And so one always has to keep in mind that there are existing spacecraft out there um, with technology. You can't change the spacecraft, of course, so you have to be very careful not to do something that di would disrupt a current spacecraft while enabling a capability for a new spacecraft. And, and perhaps the ultimate example of that is are the Voyager uh, spacecraft, the two Voyager spacecraft. They were launched in 1977, so anything one does uh, has to respect and, and be backwards compatible with the kinds of things that um, were being done in the late 70s, say. Turning then to the far future of deep space exploration, uh, what unique challenges do you think the networks of 100 or 1,000 years from now must face? That's a fascinating question. And my, my initial thought was predicting that far out is uh, – incredibly challenging. Um, of course, I have the benefit that any predictions I make, um, I won't be around to, to figure out if I'm, I'm right or not. But I thought about this in the sense of maybe the best way to imagine what communications might be like in the distant future is to look to how communications were done in the distant past. And if we think back, say, 2,000 years, to the Roman Republic, uh, and I guess the year 19 AD or AD 19 um, was kind of, it was at the end of the, it was well after the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. The Roman Republic and the Roman Empire did a very good job of building essentially high capacity roads between major cities. And my expectation is that that kind of architecture is likely to remain even into the far future. So if one wants to um, – if one wanted to transmit data between Rome and Ravenna or Rome and Brindisium, there were major roads that ran along Italy or along the Italian peninsula um, for transport of materials and of course communications today we've we know how to harness light or radio waves in a way that the romans didn't um but they still had an architecture in which one moved massive amounts of material and communications along these essentially what you would think of as backbones or trunk lines um the you know that's the lingo that we use today a backbone or a trunk line um in 2,000 years ago, it was a, a road, but the idea was you have these very high-capacity uh, trunk lines or ways of communicating between major population areas, and then the, the information would spread out from there. Um, sort of analogously, I'm sitting in Pasadena. You're in the Washington, D.C. area. There's not a line that runs between us. What will happen is there's likely to be a, a very high-capacity communication line between, say, Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., and then 
our conversation is going from Pasadena to somewhere in Los Angeles along this high-capacity line from Los Angeles to Washington and then from Washington to where you're sitting. And that's analogous to how the Romans did it. It's analogous, say, to how the Inca Empire did it um, sort of 500 years ago. There were major roads. So if I look a 1,000 years out and I imagine colonies on Mars and maybe maybe even mining colonies on asteroids, I would imagine that there will be these very high-capacity trunk lines or back communication backbones, probably enabled by laser communications. Um, and then there'll be smaller networks uh, around the hub points that funnel the communication. There'll be a high, high capacity between, say, Earth and Mars, and then it'll spread out from the uh, various communication points at Mars to the individual Martian colonies, and same for major cities on Earth. How do you find that NASA and JPL are uniquely situated to do the long-term technology development key to realizing something like uh, a network a thousand years from now? The key aspect for NASA and just one of the great things about the agency is that we can think 50 years in the future. Um, we can think uh, a century in the future. So getting some of the, the robotic missions alone that one contemplates. People are thinking about, geez, what, what would we be doing or what should we be doing um, 20 years from now? And similarly, people are mapping out how would, how would humans potentially, what's the first trip to Mars look like and, and how would that work? But of course, the long-term goal is not just to go to Mars and then come back. Similarly, the, long, the, the goal for the moon is not just to go to the moon and come back, but to establish a long-term human presence on the moon and ultimately a long-term human presence on Mars. In order to do that, you really do have to think about, well, what is what are the logistics? What are the infrastructure? What does that look like? And you have to start thinking about these things sometimes 20 or 50 years in the future. And some of the details might turn out to be not exactly what was planned uh, initially, but if you don't start thinking now, just the whole process of building the rockets and um, doing the missions, uh, if you don't start now, then you end up behind the curve. And so NASA is one of those neat places that enables, enables us to think really long-term, forces us to think really long-term uh, about how to do things. And then accordingly, once you start saying, well, here's how we think we would do it, you have to start investing in those technologies. And of course, in some cases, those technologies don't pay off for 20 or 40 years. But the very basic technologies that are being developed today are things that our grandchildren might uh, enjoy the, the fruits of. And I suppose my last question is, what excites you most about the future of space communications or the future of space exploration in general? Yeah, of course, the two are linked, right? Because Without the communications, there is no exploration. It's no, no use sending a spacecraft off if you don't get the data back, if you don't get the communications back, or if you don't have communications with it. The future, what excites me is, well, multiple things. I imagine there's a, there's a lot of interest uh, in exploring the other oceans in the solar system. We know that there are uh, now at least a half a dozen bodies in the solar system that have oceans. Some of them have more water in their oceans than the Earth does. 
moons like Europa around Jupiter, um, Enceladus at Saturn. And, you know, there's just the Earth's oceans are fascinating. So what must be the oceans at these other places? They, they must be doubly fascinating. Uh, we are currently monitoring our own, our home planet, with constellations of spacecraft, lots of spacecraft, either taking pictures or making measurements. I'd very much like to see a future in which we're doing that at other planets as well, in which we're monitoring and perhaps we'll need to do so for a future Mars colony or set of colonies, monitoring those planets the same way we do Earth. My own background is astronomy, so I look forward to much more capable observatories, something like NASA's Chandra telescope, NASA's Hubble telescope, maybe a future radio telescope, but much bigger and much more capable uh, looking at planets around nearby stars uh, to the edges of the observable universe. And again, those are just fascinating possibilities in, in space exploration and won't be possible without continuing advances in the communication so that we can not only build, say, much larger telescopes or much more capable uh, robotic spacecraft, but also get the, the important data back from them. That, that's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Sure, my pleasure. When I emailed Lazio requesting an interview, I sent him an early draft of the opening to this episode. He had some thoughts on the connections between the word reconnaissance and the exercise of dreaming up the future of space communications. He wrote, what you're describing seems to be more projection, from the Latin provocare, or throw forth. The sense is both in the standard usage of projecting into the future, but also we've talked about how communications allows us to extend ourselves in a virtual sense. He went on to add that the simple act of video conferencing with him could be interpreted as an example of this sort of projection. As we journey together to the moon, Mars, and beyond, joining brave astronauts on distant celestial bodies through video links with Earth, I'm so confident in the power this agency has to throw us forth boldly into the unknown. With scientists and engineers like Lazio driving us towards the future, tomorrow will become a word of the past. This season of The Invisible Network debuted in November of 2019. The podcast is produced by the Space Communications and Navigation Program, or SCAN, out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Episodes were written and recorded by me, Danny Baird, with editorial support from Matthew Peters. Our public affairs officers are Peter Jacobs of Goddard's Office of Communications, Claire Skelly of the Space Technology Mission Directorate, and Katherine Hamilton of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Special thanks to Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, Rob Garner, Goddard Web Team Lead, Amber Jacobson, Communications Lead for SCAN at Goddard, and all those who have lent their time, talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of the episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. 
To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, visit nasa.gov scan.